everybody and welcome to another Brexit and Beyond podcast from UK and a Changing Europe. Today we are delighted to be able to welcome as our guest uh, Paula Surridge from Bristol University. Many of you may have heard of Paula uh, because she's actually been in the media quite a lot for her research on social values and the effect that they may or may not have on uh, people's preferences when it comes to Brexit but also when it comes to voting in general elections. Uh, we're going to be discussing both of those today. Uh, we're also going to be discussing how Paula got into academia, uh, her academic work, but also how she communicates that academic work to a wider public. So welcome, Paula. Hello. Now, Paula, maybe we can start just by uh, talking a little bit about how you got into academia, because I believe you um, didn't do political science as your first degree. Tell us about that. No, I... Um... So I don't tell very many people and I'm a little bit nervous about telling the world, but my first degree is actually in accountancy because I came from a background where nobody had ever been to university before. We didn't have the first clue what academic life was all about and I was good at maths. So that seemed like an obvious thing to do was to go off and study accountancy. Um, and so I did that and I didn't enjoy it. I have to say, I mean, I struggled my way through it, but it wasn't it wasn't something I really enjoyed. And then I went to work at uh, as a civil servant in the Scottish office um, in Edinburgh, modelling how many teachers they needed um, each year because they actually make their decisions on training teachers in a sensible way based on how many teachers they actually need. Um, and whilst there, the 1992 general election happened, um, and. I, some, some listeners may remember that there was a, a polling disaster in 1992 and that fascinated me. I was absolutely fascinated by, by that big polling miss in 1992 and was lucky enough to get a job with um, Jack Brand and James Mitchell at Strathclyde working um, on the 1992 Scottish election survey. How did you make the move down from Scotland uh, to, to England? Um, well, that was driven, I, I love being in Scotland, but then I went from Edinburgh to Aberdeen, which was a lovely, lovely city, but a really long way away from everything. And family commitments meant that it was it was hard to get back and, and see family. Um, so I looked to move, move south. So I moved to um, Salford. Um, again, the, the relative strength of the, of the quantitative analysis skills um, meant that I was able to, to move based on those because there were relatively few people around A, who could teach that, that level of methodology and B, who actively enjoyed doing so. <laughs> in, that case, in that particular sense, I'm quite unusual because I do actually enjoy teaching reluctant students how to do statistics. Um, so I, it was really being, a, being able to do that that allowed me to move um, south to Salford um, and then south again to Bristol later on. Why do you think it is then that students studying politics are a bit kind of worried about doing statistics? Well, I, I've taught mostly sociology students because I'm in this kind of slightly strange position of, of being not, not quite a political scientist and not really a proper sociologist either. But it, I think there's the, the thing I get told most often by students are stories about how maths teachers made them cry at school. And so there's just this kind of wall that's gone up um, and so you, you have to kind of break that down, first of all. And the, 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 one of the first things I always say every year in my unit is that I'm not here to teach you statistics. I'm here to teach you data analysis and break down that kind of thought that it is maths and that there are right and wrong answers. And that actually there's an awful lot of 
grey areas doing statistics in the same way as there is doing any social science. Do you think that's also got something to do with the fact that we specialise a little bit too early at, at, at school and at college in some ways that, you know, unlike many other countries, you have, you know, have the opportunity in, in the UK anyway, at least in England, to drop maths at 16 and never do it again? Yeah, I think that's a really big problem. And I think you see it all the way through right down into primary schools in that it's OK to say you're not a maths person. I mean, can you can you imagine a teacher saying to you, I'm not a reading person. <laughs> it just, just would never happen, would it? And I think that's a problem that we we put a kind of mythology almost around maths and make out like it's something that only certain people can do, which is mm. which is nonsensical, really. Do you think it's a problem that politicians have? Well, there are certainly good examples we can think of of, of problems of numeracy <laughs> amongst politicians. Um, but it, I think that just reflects that kind of wider issue that a lot of those that go into politics have also specialised quite early and not had to engage with with that kind of thinking. It's, it's a style of thinking as well as the kind of numeracy side of things, I think, that gets lost too early if you specialise down onto, onto kind of humanities subjects too quickly. Mm, and certainly one of the things that um, political science departments, but also I guess sociology departments are trying to stress now is, is producing graduates who are capable of these kinds of skills, actually, isn't it? And the level of analysis and methodological sophistication now is you know so far beyond where it was when I started out in 92 I mean it's unimaginable some of the things that that you know our PhD students do with with data is quite I mean you know sometimes I have to sit really hard and think really really hard about whether or not I understand what some <laughs> what they're doing um, so yeah. it, it is way beyond what any of us started out doing it's I mean being a little bit heretical here in terms of the kind of communication of, of political or social science more generally to, to the wider public, do you ever think that the pendulum might have swung a little bit too far in that respect, in the sense that people are in some ways kind of prizing method over substance? Or, or is that, you know, an unfair accusation? No, I, I tend to agree. Um, I mean, I think I've always said all the way through my career that you only really need to use a technique that is as sophisticated as necessary for the question that you want to answer. So for some questions, you do need really sophisticated models. But for others, a crosstab will tell you the same thing. Um, you know, a simple bar chart will tell you the same thing and they're much easier to communicate. So if you've got to, I think you've always got to weigh whether or not you're actually gaining some real explanatory power versus the ability of people to be able to understand the argument. I mean, and I think that's always a bit of a trade-off. I don't know what you think about this, but uh, sometimes I wonder whether there is, you know, quite a big difference between what a statistician would regard as significant uh, and what you know, is significant in a more substantive kind of real world sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that's really hard to, to get across to students when you're teaching as well, because because they assume that it's maths and there's there's right and right mm. and wrong answers and straightforward cutoff points. But actually, there's an awful lot of there's an awful lot of room for interpretation within that. I mean, without getting into the kind of the whole debates about P values versus effect sizes, but if you've got big samples, then much more of the um, interpretation lies in how, in the sense you make of that effect size and how you communicate that, um, rather than the statistical rules. Tell us a little bit now about how you got into the study of uh, what you call social values. Yeah, so I've been studying social values right back since I started that first job in in '92, except. Most of the rest of the world weren't very interested at that time. So even in even in 2015, I was talking about social values 
um, at conferences on kind of parallel sessions that two people would turn up to because it wasn't something that political science was interested in. But it's something that I've always been fascinated in, and I guess that's why I'm still self-identify as at least partly a sociologist, if not fully a sociologist, because I've always been more interested in the behaviour of the electorate and where that comes from. So kind of going back into the, the socialisation processes, the family processes, everything that goes into that, than I have been in moving from the behaviour of the electorate to what elites and, and parties do. And I think that's why I, I lean slightly more, to, more towards um, sociology. So I've just always been fascinated. It always seemed to me with that hat on, the, the kinds of models that were based on rational calculations and all that, it just didn't really capture how people behaved and how people thought about politics. I didn't study politics. My family are at best apolitical. <laughs> I think, you know, they're just not interested. It wasn't a political household. We didn't have newspapers and, you know, things didn't have political discussions around the dinner table or anything like that. And so my experience of politics growing up was one of it being something that was done somewhere else by other people. And I think that's always fed into my understanding then of how the electorate think and behave, that actually most of the electorate are not thinking and making rational calculations and they don't know the policies on things. Then it's a much more of an emotional connection for people than a rational one. And is, is there therefore any kind of crossover with psychology uh, in, in that respect or, or sociology and psychology quite separate? Because I've always been interested in how it's related to social structures in particular, and I've had this very long-standing interest in social class, I've always tended to see it more as embedded in social structures than in mental structures, although there are overlaps. And, and I, think, I don't think disciplinary boundaries are very hard to begin with. So, you know, there are places where sociology merges with social psychology. There are other places where it merges with political science. I don't, I don't see them as being kind of... Mm completely distinct and then in respect of you know the kind of roots or origins of those social values you mentioned socialization is that socialization in the family in the workplace uh, in education i know you've written a little bit about for example how a higher education might make a difference to people's values yeah so it's all of those things actually but my own particular interest has been around the effect of education this, this comes from a conversation with my husband. Sorry, I'm hesitating as to whether or not I should make this conversation public. <laughs> he said to me when we first met, so he comes from um, South Yorkshire. From, he went to a Roman Catholic school. When we first met, which is while he was doing his degree, he said to me, talking about politics, that his background, he believed that um, homosexuality was wrong but he also believed it was wrong to believe that. So he'd got this kind of layering of his socialization processes um, that I found fascinating. I mean, that's not why I married him, but, 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 but I found that fascinating from a social science point of view, that kind of layering of these effects. And, and it's fed into my work since trying to find ways to unpack that, which is not always easy because people aren't always aware of, of those different processes taking place. So, I mean, you know, addressing that question in particular, then what what difference do you think it does make going to university? Because, you know, we can come on to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, a lot of the, the kind of social values divides seem uh, at least to be associated with, if not driven by um, participation in higher education. So what would you say you know, going to university does to people in that sense? 
I think it's complex. So I don't, I'm not a big fan of kind of coming down on absolutely one side or the other of things. I, I think it's important to say something, but at the same time, you know, monocausal explanations are, are not very helpful. You know, some of the literature that suggests this is a self-selection effect, there is certainly a certain element of self-selection into higher education in the first place. And we know that people that go into higher education are more likely to have had parents who were graduates. So they're actually more likely to have experienced that kind of political socialization in the family as well. So we've got that process happening. But then when you're in university, it's another layer where you're mixing with people, potentially with different values to, to yourself. Um, I don't think it's something that happens in the classroom, particularly, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the arguments that suggest it's, it's, you know, people like you and I putting forward our political beliefs in the classroom that's changing people's minds. <laughs> if only, if only I had that much influence, it'd be great, but yeah. I'm getting people to read my emails, you know, and <laughs> anything else. But I think it's this, this kind of process of socialization that it happens in higher education and it continues happening then in the workplace because many, not all, but many graduates go on to work in graduate heavy workplaces. So it's, it's a self-reinforcing process. I think for a lot of people who move from backgrounds where perhaps politics is, is perhaps not a big deal or perhaps from, from family backgrounds that are less liberal, they then learn a new set of values and also learn quite quickly that I think of them a little bit like the literature, the sociological literature on um, taste. So I learned quite quickly as a student that the kind of music I liked wasn't wasn't acceptable. So I just didn't mention it anymore. And I think the same sort of process happens with social values to a certain extent as well. OK, well, we won't go into your musical taste. So I am now fascinated by by what you wouldn't admit to listening to. Back then, <laughs> but perhaps that's for, for another time. You, you mentioned that you don't like these kind of monocausal either or kind of binary um, explanations. But when it comes to um social values or what some people call culture um, there does seem certainly in in the minds of some in the media and some politicians doesn't there to be this you know opposition if you like between explanations which rely on on culture or cultural values or social values on the one hand and on the other hand explanations which rely on you know people's views or position in the economy what's your take on that presumably you think there's there's an interaction there that's important Absolutely, I do. And I, I, <laughs> the irony of the last um, four years is that I'd spent about 10 to 15 years of my academic career shouting at everybody saying social values matter, cultural values matter, to, to absolutely no avail. And then I've seemed to have spent the last three or four years going, but left, right, economic values matter too. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like always having to correct because it's gone too far. And I think the processes that we've seen, particularly over the last five to 10 years in the UK, but, but elsewhere as well, show that there's been more of a fragmentation of, of values into groups which are represented by distinctive positions on both of those, both of those values dimensions. And I think that's what a lot, what gets missed a lot. I think it's what's getting missed at the moment. I hesitate to use the phrase red wall, but it seems to be everywhere at the moment. Um, and that's what get missed, gets missed whenever people try to talk about the voters they're implying when they use that term, that actually they are, they're, not, they're not unidimensional in terms of their values. Um, and so you need to think about how, how people's values will interact with issues 
across both across both dimensions and so I think that's the main thing that gets missed I think we've possibly imported a little bit too much of the polarization literature from the US and not enough of the literature looking at the more subtle groupings that you would get if you looked at the European literature why do you think that is why why do you think we continually look across the Atlantic you know particularly um, in, in the media and particularly perhaps among the political class although of course you know academics are in some ways guilty if that's the right word doing that why, why do you think that is so i think there's a simple reason and a, and a slightly more common so i think the simple reason is because of the language actually okay. it's that, that although there are now obviously a lot of european journals and and things written in english understanding the political system and the political coverage is is easier um, if you don't have language skills but i think there's also the similarities in the voting um, in the electoral system matter as well and the kind of parallels between the two-party system in both um, although obviously that's that's under challenge in the UK, but I think those parallels also lead us to make that comparison. I think well, if if we had a different electoral system, we might think differently about these political groupings than we do at the moment. Yeah, and I suppose it's also to do with you know Trump just being so to use that awful phrase media sexy so that, that that people are so tempted to kind of read across from that extreme into our politics as well particularly when perhaps we've got quite a kind of populist prime minister yeah and i think also you know the, there's there's also just kind of these historical coincidences of having the referendum and the trump election in the same year that then meant people brought those together i think some of it is just yeah they're, they're, they're these contingent factors more than anything else rather than there being quite the same parallels i mean socially very very different very very different societies different sorts of political systems all sorts of things that actually are really different get brushed aside as we import those those mm. labels yeah particularly perhaps i mean although clearly you know race and ethnicity matters in the uk i mean it's a, a very different ball game compared to the united states of america and, and of course the, the the relative lack of religiosity here compared to the united states is a massive factor i would have thought a very big yeah. difference and i i think that's I think the so the race and ethnicity stuff is very very different in the US, but it's not really it's not really my specialism, so I'm reluctant to say very much about it. But the religiosity, I think, is a really big factor in pushing the polarization in the US and not meaning that we're not polarizing in quite the same way in the UK. But I think also the UK has that stronger tradition of class politics as well, which again means that our politics is more rooted along that left-right economic dimension. Um, so it hasn't been able to completely flip to being all about social values. So, I mean, what do you say to people who you know, point to survey evidence and suggest, well, actually education is far more important than class now, age is far more important than class, and in some senses, all bit not always explicitly kind of proclaim the death of class as an influence in in British politics we've been proclaiming the death of class as an influence in British politics for as long as I've been an academic and yet <laughs> I mean I, it, again it's a really complex question and as a sociologist the, the very first thing I'm going to do is challenge what they mean by class because actually a lot of political science and political commentary is very lazy on what class actually is I mean no, it's, it's, it's 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 not political science's bag exactly particularly um so if you know if you took some definitions of class then you would put education as part of social class i actually don't go that far most of the time because i think they have different influences on political behavior so i think it's useful to keep them as separate measures and and if you look so the, one of the things that i do is i i take those value scales and i model them based on people's social positions and social class 
income, wealth, all strongly correlate still with that left-right position. So how you feel about economics still strongly correlates with those older divides, whilst education is the primary driver of the social values divide. And age fits into that in a really complex way because of the the kind of conflation of the of age with the expansion of higher education it makes it very hard to completely disentangle um, those two processes though much of the work that i've done on the social values side do it does show that the education is the stronger influence there quite often what you pick up in polling in particular that looks like an age effect is an education effect but education isn't in the cross break so you don't see it i mean obviously a lot of the work that you do involves survey research but uh, quite a lot of what we've seen about the Red Wall recently, including the book by Deborah Mattinson, who actually you know, uses quite a lot of your um, work, uh, involves more kind of qualitative means of, of gathering data uh, and interpreting it. I mean, uh, what do you see is the, the role and the kind of you know, cross-fertilization between quantitative and qualitative work? I think, they, I think they need each other. So although personally, I prefer doing quantitative work. I'm happy when I'm sat with the data set, but I think they absolutely need each other. I don't think you can have one without the other. And the way I think about it is that they're each, they're like, they're like using different types of cameras to take the same, to take a picture of the same object. You're going to get slightly different views of it. You're going to see it in a different way, but ultimately they're helping to illuminate that same picture. So I think that, I think they're really important, but I think we should also treat each of them with a certain degree of skepticism because they each have their their own weaknesses as well as their own strengths i think the important thing is really to make sure that you're using using the right one in the right in the right way um, to say the right things rather than you know don't don't use your focus groups to generalize to the entire electorate but at the same time don't necessarily use your surveys to think that you've captured everything they're unlikely to have captured what it means to people how people feel about themselves their identities and so on so yeah i i'm i think you need both i just i've never done very much on the qualitative <laughs> side although of course that's changing in a way isn't it because you are involved in you know and and you know confession so am i in writing you know the the next nuffield study as it were of the of the british general election and and you've been doing some interviewing for that i know i have yes and that was so it was a steep learning curve in the first place because it was the first time i'd done any qualitative interviewing and obviously it's a particular type of qualitative interviewing as well because it's it's interviewing elites so it was a very steep learning curve and to, and to make it just that little bit more challenging because otherwise it might have been too easy um it all it all had to move to zoom as well <laughs> well we'll we'll see the results of that hopefully from from both of us um next year in terms of you know communicating your work as we begin to wind up i mean how easy is it or how difficult is it to to communicate quantitative work compared to qualitative work because one of the strengths in some ways of kind of focus group work is that it provides a whole set of stories and, and, of course, narratives and stories and, you know, bringing it down to the personal and real people is a very effective means of communication. Whereas survey research strikes me as perhaps a little bit more difficult. How do you get over that? Because actually your work does appear quite a lot in the media. When I teach data analysis, I tell students that their job is to create quantitative narratives. 
So their job is to analyze the data, but then create a narrative from that that uses the data in a way that doesn't misrepresent the data, but still makes it an interesting piece to read. Um, and so that's what I try to do is that I try to drip away the unnecessary complexity, or at least keep that hidden in the background a little bit. So it's there for people that do want it, but try to tell stories with the data that still connect with people. And it, it's something, I don't know whether, I don't know whether it's, I find it easier because my statistics, my data analysis is almost entirely self-taught. Self so I don't have the, the kind of very formal language that some people have learned as a way of learning statistics. And, and I've had to kind of wrestle with ways of explaining it to myself almost, <laughs> but, but then work as ways to, of explaining it to other people. And I guess I'm also helped by the fact that I've got, you know, a very apolitical family around me. So if they can make a little bit of sense of what I'm talking about, then that's probably pitching it at about the right level so i guess they're helpful for that as well and what about i mean have there been advances uh, advances do you think in in visualization that have helped they've helped to some extent but i mean a lot of the media stuff doesn't still doesn't use visualizations um in the way that we would do blog posts and so on i think visualization does help but ultimately you've still got to be able to tell those stories with words you know you've got to be able to communicate in words as well as in numbers Best statisticians i know are the people who are not necessarily great at doing that side of things they're not always good at being able to explain what they've done and i mean using words then uh when you finish <laughs> up last question really you you've you touched on this question of polarization and it and it's something that obviously really worries uh, a lot of people and again you know to come back to a thing we, we've addressed particularly those who kind of look across at the United States and think they're but for the grace of whoever go we I mean you suggested that you know we're not quite as polarized does that mean you're a little bit more perhaps optimistic uh, than some people about the way that British society and British politics is going yes I think so I mean I don't see as I don't see British politics as being on a necessary journey to the to 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 two polarised camps. I mean, obviously, we've had lots of work done, lots of excellent work that um, UK and Change in Europe have done on Brexit identities and the importance of Brexit identities. But what we've seen over the last year is that those binary divides, and you've written on this recently, don't easily map onto new divides that come along. And it seems as though the next five years or the, the period up to the next general election is likely to be as much marked by economic issues as it is by the kind of social issues that would help to keep pushing that Brexit divide. So I think we're, we're much more likely to see these distinctive groups being noticeable in our electorate that combine economic and social values than two big blocks that kind of face off against each other. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it makes our politics simple, because what you've then got are all these fragmented groups that don't match onto our electoral system in any useful way. Um, so you're going to have this constant, I think, battle for the political parties to hold on to the bits of their coalitions that don't quite fit on one on one scale or another. And we've seen that the last four years, I guess, we've seen Labour struggle with that, particularly on social values. We may see the Conservatives begin to struggle with that on economic values over the over the coming period. But I, I don't think it's very easy to predict how the British electorate are going to, even if their values might change after a year like this. I mean, we don't expect values to change rapidly, but we do know that, that crises can can make really significant changes in, in um, the kind of underlying social values and, and social dimensions. So that's, if, if, 
that that that's really quite speculative i think beyond beyond the end of this week never mind going into the into the general election but i don't see i don't see us ever um completely polarizing into two big camps All right well we'll see indeed how that plays out over the next year and indeed the next uh, few years until the 2024 election uh i'd like to thank uh, Paul for coming along today and talking uh, about so many interesting issues. Uh, you've been listening to Brexit and Beyond, podcasts from UK in a changing Europe. Uh, if you'd like to hear more uh, of those podcasts, you can uh, find them uh, on your normal podcast provider. Uh, you can also, of course, go to our website. Uh, do have a look. We've got all sorts of uh, interesting blogs as well as podcasts. We do all sorts of interesting uh, events, live and otherwise. But whatever, join us for another podcast in the future. Thank you very much.